0: And again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is, you can say your name. Michael Murphy. <laughs> um, so what What do you do, whatever that means to you?
1: <laughs> uh, I've pretty much had a career doing disaster planning and response, initially as a paramedic providing patient care, and that, that eventually morphed into medical system disaster response uh, Full time for uh, the last 20, 25 years or so. Uh, what is,
0: I guess, really just as simple as what does that mean?
1: <laughs> what does that mean? Yes. That's yeah. a very good question. Uh, is when something bad happens and it affects the medical system, mm-hmm. generates patients, affects the medical system in some way, shape, or form. Mm. Um, what I've done in the past is, is, check on the medical system and try to help mitigate the problem Mm. or provide support for the medical system so they can take care of the patients and uh, and be able to maintain their structural integrity so they're still there after the
2: incident.
1: Uh, So I'm going to take this
0: moment to point out the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic and I'm just going to say that any sort of Professional opinion will not be coming from you. Uh, so, if anyone that is listening wanted to hear that, uh, just go to the official
1: public. Yeah, there's there's actually a structure in place, uh, and that's part of the whole response structure. That mm-hmm. information is actually channeled through. Identified individuals and identified processes. Now, you can't stop social media, can't stop the mainstream media, but those of us that are actually in a response mode really are not allowed to discuss the response because Mm. that has to go through. And that's done with a specific purpose to make sure that the messaging is consistent and and approved and things like that. Some people will say it's filtered, but. Everything gets filtered in some, some way, shape, sure. or form. But the main p- part of it is, is that you don't have any wildcat messaging going out there, which creates confusion. And we've seen enough of that already.
0: Yeah. Um, well, cool. So we've gotten that out of the way. We're not going to be talking about COVID. That's fine. Uh, so how did you get started on that? At what point did that become your career? Always been
1: interested in medicine since I was a kid, uh, anatomy, uh, there were early TV shows like rescue eight, mm. um, which is dating myself way back, <laughs> uh, that, I, that I absolutely loved, uh, had initial plans of being a doctor, but like most people, um, once I got through with my first year of academic studies at my 13th grade community college, that option was pretty much out the, out the door. Yeah, um, Went to work as a veterinary technician, which was probably the best job that I've ever had. Mm. I loved it. Didn't pay anything, but I loved yeah. it. And yeah. uh, then eventually uh, an opportunity came up to be a paramedic mm-hmm. and that kind of caught my eye. So I went through the process of doing that, I found out that I loved it, was good at it. And did that for years. And then as as time went on, went through many disasters. Mm -hmm. As a a field paramedic, the Flight 90 crash in Washington, D.C., Mm -hmm. and actually I was involved with the subway crash that occurred almost simultaneously during a blizzard in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. You talk about an interesting day. Um, That was an interesting day and other, the IBM mass shootings back uh, Mm. before mass shootings were a thing. Yeah. Uh, So I developed some experience, some expertise on it, and some interest. It eventually got up to a high enough level within administration that they wanted somebody to do that on a regular full-time basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I started doing that. Then in 1998, 99, the federal government, responding to the Tokyo Seren attacks, Mm. developed a program where they went to each city in the country and asked them to do medical system planning and preparedness. It was a contract and they asked me to uh, do that full time. Well, actually, it was an 18-year temporary project or not 18-year, 18-month temporary project. (laughs) And then when the jets went into the World Trade Center, that 18-month temporary project became a full-time job, that position is still going. Sure. Um, So then I ended up doing that full-time, just working on medical system preparedness. Mm. And really, it started with the federal government said, you know, if somebody released some sarin gas in the middle of uh, one of our subway systems, how would our country do? How would Mm. we respond? Sure. And the answer was, we would not respond real well. Right. (laughs) So they were actually working the issue before uh, the incident of the Twin, twin Towers, mm-hmm. and then once the, uh, the, you know, the terrorist attack occurred, then the check, federal checkbook opened, programs opened, and it became mm-hmm. a much larger project. But to their credit, the federal government actually had been working it since 1996, really, sure, um, because they saw what happened over in Tokyo and mm-hmm. realized that we're in a new world and we better start working on it.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to find which one of these paths to chase down. Um, so do you think that because that project had begun uh, earlier that the response, especially in uh, on September 11th, was better, or was it still not was the infrastructure still not well in place enough? to be prepared for something like that.
1: Uh, The infrastructure was, well, first of all, what happened on 9-11 was just extraordinary, unusual, uh, different, and huge in scope and scale. Mm. So even the best prepared, if we'd been doing it for 20 or 30 years, would have a hard time doing that. I think it helped because there had been efforts within the medical system in New York City to do Mm -hmm. joint planning and work together, Um, but uh, it was still relatively in its infancy stages. Mm -hmm. So I would answer the question by saying, yes, it helped, but it didn't solve all the problems. Sure.
0: Um. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, I'll just follow this train of thought then. Uh, Since... I mean, you're not a doctor, but you do work in medical systems. I guess, what's the distinction between sort of being a like medical professional versus what you do?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Because people, people ask me that all the time. Um, the doctor is the, the pinnacle of delivering clinical care to mm-hmm. an individual patient. Um, He or she's had an incredible amount of education, and what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of hard work working the floors, 20,000 hours of clinical experience Mm -hmm. before they cut them loose to be able to treat anybody. Sure. But their focus is on the individual patient, Mm -hmm. um, and they're providing clinical treatment. Yeah. Uh, So you're looking at that as from an individual unit base Mm -hmm. as opposed to a system base where you're looking at all the doctors. Not only all the doctors, but all the nurses and everybody that makes up this huge infrastructure that we call our medical system and then our public health system. Right. So I look at it from the macro level where the individual physician will be treating a patient at the micro level. Right. Um, it helps to have clinical expertise to mm-hmm. a certain degree. So being a paramedic helped yeah. so I can understand their world to a certain degree and what the impact of some decisions made at the macro level may have at the micro level. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certainly physicians that operate at the macro level yeah. um, and do it quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's probably the biggest difference is I'm looking at it from a system uh, approach sure. as opposed to... The physician looking at an individual patient or an individual emergency department approach.
0: Yeah. Um, does it like do you kind of face issues in the in that since you aren't a doctor that your opinion is sort of distrusted from that clinical perspective because you.
1: Uh, Very rarely (laughs) do you write it out. Number one is I don't pretend to be a clinical expert. Sure. Um, But I have expertise in certain things that Mm -hmm. the physicians don't. Um, And my experience has been is that as long as you recognize their expertise and their capabilities and you don't try to usurp those or pretend like you've got the same level, Mm -hmm. uh, they're very willing to work with you. I've had relatively few instances of ever dealing with a physician
2: mm.
1: when it comes to preparedness and planning and things like that that where you know they thought they knew more than I did mm. um, things like that they, they'll get accused of that a lot <laughs> because they're extremely intelligent people very yeah. well educated and trained and they have opinions mm. um, and they're also patient advocates so they'll They'll offer opinions, sure, sure. Uh, but usually, there's a way to to make a happy middle ground. Where we run into conflict is when you look at it from the greater good versus the individual patient. Physicians tend to be advocates for their individual patients, mm-hmm. and sometimes we have to look at it from a greater good aspect mm-hmm. uh, that may conflict. Um, yeah, sort of like the public health approach, where public health looks at. Communities versus Mm -hmm. individuals, where the medical system looks at individual patients, and so sometimes there's a conflict. Classic example would be the use of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a public health perspective, they would want to limit the use of antibiotics because you're building up a beauty within the organisms. So only use it where it's. Uh, absolutely indicated, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a physician, some physicians may give somebody an antibiotic even though they know it's viral just in case or that's because of what the patient wants. Mm-hmm. Um, antivirals is another one. Don't yeah. give everybody Tamiflu because the influenza virus will develop immunity to it where a physician will say, oh, I've got a patient who's incredibly... Uncomfortable, sick, and this I've got a medication that will relieve their suffering, so right. I'm gonna give them the medication. But that's the exception to the rule. The, right. the vast, vast majority of time they're walking hand in hand because sure. one can't survive without the other.
0: Yeah. Um how much time did you spend as a paramedic?
1: I started EMS in 1976, became a paramedic in 78. And I just let my license lapse uh, in uh, 2018. So basically, I was 40 years as a paramedic. Now, I actually worked uh, as a paramedic from 78 to 92. Mm -hmm. Then I became a field supervisor. So another 10 years where I was out there supervising other paramedics, but still practicing. Mm -hmm. And then after 98, 99, then it was pretty much going into the systems approach.
2: Yeah.
0: Um oh man i was forgetting how I was going to word this question. Okay, yeah. The since you kind of work in the crisis part of that, is there ever a point that the system is not in some sort of crisis thing? Like what is the the normal zero state if at all? <laughs>
1: Well, the the system does have a zero state. Now, there's always a low-level mm-hmm. crisis type thing. It depends on the time of day, time of year, mm-hmm. where you are geographically located, what's going on, uh, you know, summertime time. Versus wintertime, things will be different. The problems to the system will be different. Normally, the system tends to suffer a whole lot more from November until March just because of influenza season. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that taxes the system more because there's more patients that need to be cared for Mm -hmm. uh, and and more providers that get ill with the flu. Right. So there's always a low level uh, changes. It's a very dynamic system. Uh, but for the most part, the system takes care of itself. Sure. <laughs> uh, with individual pockets of mini crises, one hospital may get overloaded and mm-hmm. want to send their patients elsewhere. That's a constant thing. Mm-hmm. But that's dealt with on a daily basis by the people within the system without any really outside assistance.
0: Yeah. Um, how, or I guess, what have been the... I guess, common trends that cause uh, stress on the system? Uh,
1: the system, basically the way to look at it is resource. Uh, if you have the resources to treat the patients, then everything seems to be fine and hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have enough staff in your ER and you have the access to mm-hmm. diagnostics and ORs, then, you know, the, the system just clicks right along. The the things that upset the system are breaks within the within the resources. Mm-hmm. So if something happens with staffing, um, if the volume of patients suddenly increases yeah. because now the staffing you have is not adequate, so you've got a resource shortfall yeah. there. Uh, if the building it's damaged,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, if the utilities that support the the building, which is a relatively common one hmm. compared to the others if all of a sudden power goes out uh, yeah. hospitals have generators yeah uh, but one of the things that they're most dependent upon is water yeah a hospital cannot function longer than probably 24 hours without water yeah and it's used in so many different parts of the the, the hospital system uh, but things like that so it's just if if there's any interruption in the resource needs mm-hmm. then there's a temporary crisis and then depending upon how long that interruption occurs yeah uh, then you get into real crisis it's interesting because on may 20th 2013 when we had that massive tornado Mm -hmm. the day of the tornado was absolutely horrific we had people die children die we had uh lots of people injured but it didn't really negatively affect the medical system. Mm. We even had a hospital that was hit by the tornado that had to be evacuated. Mm. But the hospital system had enough resources and enough capacity that it was easily able to address that situation. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the Draper water plant lost both its sources of power. Mm. And so it could no longer pump water to about a third of the city. Mm -hmm. And that meant 13 hospitals were without water. Yeah. And I actually, uh, the the day after the tornado was more of a crisis Mm. for me because I was looking at having to evacuate a thousand patients Mm. to put them in hospitals that still had water and could run air conditioners and things like that. Thank the Lord for small favors. They sure. got the water back on. We actually did move some patients, but not nearly the amount that we were looking at. Mm-hmm. But that's an example of, you know, even though there's a lot of patients, that the system can handle those patients, it's mm-hmm. not really a crisis. Sure. Um, now it's a crisis to the individuals involved and right. the people that, that died or lost loved ones. But from a system point of view, that wasn't a major stressor. Mm-hmm. The major stressor was the next day when the water didn't work for 12, 24 hours.
0: Yeah. Um, So speaking of things like that, uh, what are the uh, little things that are kind of unseen stressors that people wouldn't normally consider that becomes a big deal? uh,
1: Even if it. Uh, The the two big, the the immediate ones is utility is, is, Mm. you know the how fragile our utility systems are and how much the medical system depends upon that mm. and it could be anything from transportation yeah if dialysis patients can't get to dialysis that creates an an issue mm. uh, snowstorms can create a problem so it's interruptions to the infrastructure and then the other is probably uh new novel diseases Mm. where the medical system doesn't know how to protect themselves, doesn't know exactly how that disease is going to present. Uh, Then that becomes a threat or a potential threat to each individual healthcare provider. Um, They'll still be there taking care of patients, but that's, that's a real stressor to the system. And all of a sudden protection equipment can be utilized. And then you've got another resource uh, challenge that you got on your hands. Uh, As far as patient volume, um, they usually handle patient volume surges on a semi-regular basis. So sure. as long as it's not overwhelmingly excessive, right. they adapt and they they handle the the what we call a surge, and then they uh, come back down to to. You know, pre-surge levels they do that every year with the flu season things mm. like that now obviously if the number of patients becomes sustained mm-hmm. and excessively high then you've got issues about having a rashing care and things like sure, that sure. but the real the immediate ones is probably the new diseases or unknown diseases that mm-hmm. they're not familiar with so they don't know exactly how to treat mm-hmm. and more importantly they don't know exactly how to protect themselves mm-hmm. which is a situation that we're in right today sure. and then the other one is probably just the the damage or the interruption of the infrastructure that the the medical system sure. uh, depends upon, that that can be have an immediate effect.
0: Yeah. Uh, since you've been doing this uh, for a while, how has technology affected uh, or impacted, made your job easier or harder
1: in some cases? It's done both. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was. Well, I remember in the during the Oklahoma City bombing, I had a cell phone that we called the brick because it was so big. But at right. least I had a cell phone. Sure. Uh, the one of the infrastructure issues is, it, that has come about
2: mm.
1: has been the information technology infrastructure, yeah. and hospitals are incredibly uh, reliant on that. Yeah. Uh, The internet. Mm -hmm. Um, X-rays are all digital now. Yeah. Um, They're sending information back and forth. Uh, All electronic charting is digital. So you lose the internet. Um, (laughs) The hospital has to go back 20 years, 30 years, and... Is nothing nicer than to see the joy of that 30-year nurse <laughs> that worked in the day when they had to write things down on paper right? and doesn't miss a lick when the internet or that electronic record goes down because mm. he or she hates that thing anyway. Right. And then they sit with glee while the younger nurses can't function because they've never had to write a chart on paper. Right. So it's it's... It's enabled the medical system to do wonderful things. Mm -hmm. Imaging, disease detection, lab, uh, communications, telemedicine Mm -hmm. uh, has been huge to get out into the rural areas. Uh, So it has definitely improved the life of the medical world. But it's also now one of those infrastructure issues that you're very dependent upon. And if there's any interruption to it, it interrupts the, uh, the medical system.
0: Yeah. Um, What about improvements in uh, like medical technology, uh, Uh, for example, like making uh, treatment go faster or I guess in some cases slower, too? Well, that is skyrocketed.
1: And it's still, you know, it's one of these daily doublers where it's not (laughs) growth is not linear. It's exponential. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people alive today because of technology that was developed 10, 20 years ago where the same disease process in the same person would have been a fatal event. And it's very easy to see that happening. Um, And we're continually developing new, new technology, new processes that can cure disease Mm -hmm. or reduce long-term suffering. Um, So that is, been a, a very significant improvement to the mm-hmm. medical system. At the same time, they're incredibly expensive. Right. They tend to be focused on one patient. Now, if you or your loved one is that one patient, you don't care. So we're getting into some type of cost issues. Uh, right. The other thing is that we're able to prolong life uh, longer than we've ever been able to. Right. And so then you just start getting into some ethical questions about, you know, just because we can, should we?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the answer is easy if it's you or your loved one. <laughs> right. uh, but from a large uh, umbrella view mm-hmm. um that's that's some of the challenges but i think the overall assessment is is that the brilliant minds of many mm-hmm. have developed some incredible technologies that are really changing the lives of, of mm-hmm. people today that weren't available 20 30 years ago
2: yeah
0: um i don't know if you sort of keep up with those sort of developments but is there something that you're kind of hearing about that like kind of obviously the current thing going on uh, notwithstanding but like that you're excited about that if this thing goes through it'll help
1: uh, I can't think of anything right now there's all sorts of different ones that that are on the uh, the edge and it's also just improvements of mm-hmm. existing products so like vaccine development. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can shorten that time cycle for uh, vaccine development, medication development mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of uh, hope in using different types of plant materials that nobody ever thought about before mm-hmm. going back and looking at uh, historical rather primitive Care systems and realizing that there was some method to the madness that they were doing there, that the plants that they were using, uh, some of the uh, using different types of animals, the venoms of, of, Mm. of animals that are having some really promising anticoagulant and and cardiac type medications. There's a scary part about the antibiotics because we've actually, some will say that we've just been through 50 years, 60 years, the highlight, the golden age of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. We're running out of options. We don't have any new antibiotics in the pipeline, quote unquote. The Mm -hmm. bugs are getting smarter, the viruses are getting smarter. Um, so we're eventually, now we're seeing a whole lot of resistant type strains of mm-hmm. bacteria. Um, but then at the same time that you're worried about that, there's a lot of people out there with very brilliant minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm excited to see where that, what that comes at that. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be that we're looking at mother nature for things that we ignored before that yeah. may actually, uh, give us some, some pretty good, good treatment uh, yeah, yeah. options.
0: Um, I guess, because thinking about that, uh, makes me think about the, the hygiene hypothesis about the balance between, you know, washing your hands all the time or kind of letting a little bit in every now and again, I guess, what, where would you stand on that
1: front? Do you... Um, there's, <laughs> I like the idea of the herd immunity and letting your kids go dig in the dirt sure. and things like that. Uh, I think that to be putting kids in a bubble uh, creates issues or may create issues. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody knows definitively. At the same time, if there are vaccines or other treatments or other processes mm-hmm. that you know work, Right. Um, I think that uh, you should make yourself available to that. So yeah. there's, uh, you know, there's certain things as you can't wash your hands enough. You know, <laughs> the, the the clue to washing your hands enough is when your skin breaks down, <laughs> uh, and then find some soap with some lanolin in it or something like that. That's just there's good daily. Uh, healthcare and hygiene practices mm-hmm. that that go on and it's interesting because whenever we have any type of infectious disease or any mm-hmm. type of public health issue, not just this one but the ones in the past, mm-hmm. it always seems to go back down to uh, common sense things yeah. are what really makes the difference and so mm. if we carry on those common sense things every day of our lives we can do a lot to yeah. to mitigate the disease but i also don't i think there's some benefit to the natural exposure to germs it's just what's the balance you don't want to take your kid or do like they did in the 1700s where you have smallpox parties so you, or <laughs> chickenpox parties where your kids would get the chickenpox and get it over and done with mm. um, you know one parent has a kid with chicken pox and puts out the alert and everybody brings their kids over to get exposed i don't think we should go that far but um you know a a filthy dirty kid is probably a happy and a healthy kid sure Um, and (laughs) i think that that's a good thing
0: right but they should still probably wash their hands before touching other people at least
1: Yes, I, think, I still think that common sense things covering your mouth when you cough and sneeze mm-hmm. and washing your hands, that's societal-wise, that's just a good thing. Sure. Um, <laughs> you don't even have to get to the health part of it, but right. that's, that's the core principles of good public health practice. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you kind of
0: enticed me with mentions of crazy stories of things that have happened in the past, so... I guess, like, pick one or two things that you've experienced that you feel are an interesting story, at least, to tell.
1: <laughs> now you put me on the spot. Now I can't think of anything. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, you mentioned uh, one in uh, during a blizzard.
1: Oh, yeah, the the, the Flight 90 crash crash. Uh, you know, a lot of people remember the Flight 90 crash because mm-hmm. Air Florida jet crashed into the 14th Street Bridge, I think it was, mm-hmm. and went into the Potomac River. Then you had the dramatic, you know, video footage of Eagle One mm-hmm. and Lenny Skutnik and getting out the four or five survivors that that made it out of that. But there was what a lot of people don't realize is it was snowing, but it actually was a significant blizzard. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Washington had closed down the government had closed and in Washington D.C. in the suburbs when the federal government closes that means you're done because that's you know 60-70% of all the employees (laughs) and that means that the roads are going to be horrible Mm. Uh, now they had called us in uh, I was actually off that day and was going to go enjoy the snow and then they called us in Mm. said that it's bad can you come in So we reported the station. We had all of our units staffed, even our backup units. We were all ready to go, um, waiting for something interesting to happen just because they always do during a blizzard. We had no clue it would be this interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then all of a sudden we hear about a plane crash in the Potomac River. Now We were 20 miles away from that plane crash. There were a whole lot of units between that site and us Mm -hmm. so we just kind of sat back and was like okay well we'll go we'll probably go backfill some areas that's had to go to the plane crash and washington dc dispatch called and said you know what can you send so we told him you know what we had in our station staffed and he said send it all and so we just uh (laughs) took off had this big long caravan i was on a unit called montgomery medic one Driving through the snow and we're talking, you know, 18, 24 inches of snow. Yeah. Uh, Traffic, at a gridlock. We're driving on sidewalks. We're going Mm -hmm. all around (laughs) and we're working our way down towards the the Potomac River. And on a good day, that's 45 minute drive. Yeah. And we're looking at probably two or three hours. Yeah. Um, But they wanted us to go there. So we didn't know what was going on. And... So we've got this corridor going down, this caravan going down, and then all of a sudden they announce on the radio that Montgomery Medic 1 report to the Smithsonian uh, Station hmm. for a plane crash. And so the guy driving just veers off from the caravan and starts heading into a neighborhood. And I'm upset because I think it's just somebody is got plane and train hmm. confused. And now I'm not going to make it to the plane crash. Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss the big one, quote unquote, because some dispatcher couldn't tell the difference between a plane or a train. Sure. And they were going through this neighborhood, and I finally, you know, I had to ride in the back of the truck, so I stuck my head in through the window and just said, do you have any idea where you're going? And he said no, Hmm. because it was total whiteout. and It was total blizzard. And I was like, well, probably would be a good idea to try to find out where to go instead of just driving around aimlessly. Yeah. And we found a police car that was sitting there with a couple of cops in it and banged on the window, (laughs) scared the daylights out of them, and said, how do you get to the Smithsonian station? Hmm. And so they escorted us down. We finally get there. The Smithsonian Station sits right on the mall in Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. So there's this big open area that was just totally deserted and full of just a total white winter wonderland. Mm -hmm. It was just beautiful still. And the Smithsonian Station is actually just a hole in the ground with an escalator that goes down into the Mm -hmm. uh, station. Sure. Um, We get there, and there's not another piece of apparatus there. Hmm. nobody's there. It's dead quiet, nothing. Which just convinced me that the dispatcher had made this horrible mistake yeah, and that I'm going to miss the plane crash. Hmm. The uh, we get our gear out, we get met by a DC fire chief and I was like, okay. And they're going down into the hole and yeah. he came up and said, you don't need to bring that stuff with you. And we're like, oh great, well it's and I always had a policy that if I went down into the, the subway system, I brought my gear with me because it's too far to go get it again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just told my crew that we're bringing everything with us. Mm-hmm. We get down to the tracks. Um, nothing going on. Nothing going on in that station, the platform. So we start walking the tracks. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we come around to Ben and we see a subway car uh, derailed. Yeah but there's no sound, anything. Mm. Um, and once again, I'm just like, okay, so it's a stupid derailment that happened every now and then. Mm. But obviously it's so quiet that nothing's going on. So now here I am underneath the mall, <laughs> and there's a plane crash in the Potomac River that I'm going to miss. And then just as I got up to the, uh, the car, a uh, hearse tool, one of the hydraulic rescue tools motor started up. And I was like, well, that's different because that means they're cutting somebody out of something. Mm -hmm. And then I got to the car, and there was another D.C. fire chief there in the car, and I said, I'm, you know, paramedic Murphy, Montgomery Medic 1. I was told to respond down here, and he just said, well, thank God you're here. Your patient is at the end of this car in between the three dead ones. And I was kind of like okay that 's different. Mm. Um, and so I hopped up in the car, which the bottom of the car is probably at about the six foot level, mm. and I hopped up, and then on the other side of the car, I could see the rest of the tracks, and it was absolute Armageddon. There mm. were lights, medics, patients, mm. everything, and this had been a major train crash, yeah, um, so then I had to we had to cut out some of the dead bodies to get to my patient. Um, and eventually, uh, took him out the other one, the, to the next station, which is called federal triangle and got to the platform there with my patient who was traumatically injured. I had to go to GW. And then once I got to the the station, once again, there was just medics and patients. Mm. And I was just like, how could it be so quiet up until that car, um, and then I took that patient up, took him to GW. And then when I got done with uh, uh, the pay, dropping the patient off of GW, then I got sent down to the, the plane crash. But it was over and done with by then. Right, but it was yeah. pretty eerie. What a lot of people don't realize too is the plane crashed on the bridge, and that bridge was filled with cars.
2: Hmm.
1: And so part of the plane's fuselage literally stomped about eight or 10 cars. Yeah, and they were literally flattened, Mm -hmm. Um, and some people passed away in those cars as well. But as far as the rescue operation, that had been long, long done and and gone. So we stood there in the in the snow and freezing cold for a while, and then they eventually sent us back home. But a lot of people don't realize that almost when they went back and looked at it, it was almost simultaneous within like a minute or two, Mm -hmm. where the plane crashed and the subway actually. It just switched tracks and then tried to back up. And when it backed up, it took a, one of the walls in between the, the uh, two tracks, acted like a can opener and mm-hmm. just literally opened up and crushed all the people as the train wow. was backing up for about two, three cars worth of people. Mm. Um, and it killed like five or six there. Wow. But that was an interesting day. <laughs> um, and
0: a lot can happen at once.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that there was a, a second huge operation that was yeah, going yeah. on, which was that subway. Um, and I was just a paramedic mm-hmm. on an individual unit. I wouldn't even want to try to imagine how to manage that incident from a command and control point of view. Because mm-hmm. you had the weather and then two major mass casualties. Right, right. One was in Washington, D.C. One was actually in Virginia. The plane mm-hmm. crash was managed for the Virginia side. So you also had all those jurisdictions that you had to deal with. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, what's one that you were kind of on the control side?
1: Well, you're never in control. You only pretend you're in control. Right, but... (laughs) Um, Circumstances or whatever you want to leave dictate things. Um, You just try to... We always say this is the best you can hope for is controlled chaos. Sure. Um, Or quasi-controlled chaos. Right. It's still going to be chaos. The uh, the bombing Mm -hmm. uh, was one. The tornadoes, the Mm. 1999 tornadoes, uh, 2008, you know, all the different tornado strikes that we've had. Mm. Um, We were, I was actually in the command center for the 2013. We have a medical operations center, Mm. specifically, a group of people get together, try to coordinate. Sure. What the medical system needs, and we have got such great weather prediction here in this area <laughs> that they called us and said something bad's going to happen. We don't know when, but we know it's bad. It is mm. going to be bad. So we went ahead and staffed it just on the word of yeah the, the weather service. And mm. sure enough, about three thirty, something bad happened. Yeah, um, the nineteen ninety nine tornado. The of course the bombing. Everybody's familiar with what happened in the bombing. Mm. Um, that was, I was in the headquarters building around, around 10th and, and Walker. Mm. Uh, we found out about the bombing when the ceiling tiles all lifted up and came down on our heads. It mm. damaged the building. We went outside to the garage area thinking that our building had blown up sure. because the, the percussion wave was that strong. Right. And then we looked out the window and saw the column of smoke you know, yeah. seven blocks away. So we realized that. Number one, it wasn't our building that blew up. And number Mm. two is whatever it is, it was pretty impressive because it shook our building that far away. Yeah. Um, And that was living down there for the first 72 hours Mm -hmm. and um, about a 35-day deployment down there where I pretty much lived down there most of the time. Um, A lot of people don't realize that we, you know, the last live patient came out at 9 o'clock that night, so about 12 hours. Uh, but there was a need for, for planning and preparedness because that building was incredibly unstable. Yeah. And there was a lot of people working in it, and they were removing a lot of debris, which was kind of holding up the building. So the risk of that building collapsing on its own mm-hmm. uh, was very, very present. Yeah. And a lot of the people don't realize, the you know, what I consider the true heroes is those allied construction, allied steel guys, Mm -hmm. because they basically stabilized the building Mm. uh, with construction workers before the firemen and policemen and paramedics could, you know, or while the firemen and policemen and paramedics were working. Yeah. But their stabilizing the building stopped it from falling down when we were trying to... uh, to retrieve the the, the yeah. bodies and stuff like that. So a lot of people don't realize that there are, in every incident, there are unique, unheard of, unrecognized mm-hmm. uh, people that do superlative work yeah. that really make the difference. Mm-hmm. And the people they are working realize... How important they were, but they don 't always get the media they know the police, the firemen, everybody gets all the sure, sure. heroics, but there's always somebody it's a public works uh, during the bombing, public works turned off the water to the building. in fact, if you look at pictures, if you mm-hmm. see people drenched from head to toe, yeah, they were there early, yeah because it busted up the sprinkler system. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people that were in danger of drowning because they were trapped. The basement was filling up with water. And it was a city public works person that turned off the water to the building. Mm -hmm. That act alone probably saved 10 lives. Yeah, Um, Never hear about that. Sure. Uh, And that that goes on uh, with everyone. Yeah, yeah. The 99 tornado, that was interesting because we knew we were going to have a disaster. We had 45 minutes warning. And what do you do in 45 minutes? (laughs) Uh, you, We sat and you know, yeah. we did the deployment, made sure everybody's safe, told the units that when we tell you to, go find cover, identify your cover now. Sure. Uh, and then as it got closer, um, we moved them back, getting ready to stay out of harm's way to be able to come in behind it. But we sat there and watched it on TV, just like everybody else, realizing yeah. that. You know, in about an hour, our life is going to change significantly here. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it just kept on coming and plowed in. Yeah. We almost uh, got taken out by a backside eddy. Uh, when a large tornado goes through, a lot of times there's little tornadoes that are affiliated with it, especially mm-hmm. one that size. That thing was a was a pretty big tornado. Mm-hmm. So when it went by, we filed it behind it to start trying to pick up the pieces. Sure. And all of a sudden, our vehicle lifted up, and it was a Ford Expedition, I think. Where, a, a, ex, yeah, I think it was an expedition. But it felt like it lifted up in the air, and then when it came back down, the wheels were turned, so it it jerked in in turn direction. Driver got it under control,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so I just looked at him and said, "Did what I think happened just happen?" <laughs> And he said, yeah, we just got caught by one of those Eddies. So Yeah. Um, then we told, we had a cameraman with us, and we told him his job was to look out the back window and look for tornadoes. And he thought we were joking with him. And <laughs> then we just gave him some choice language and because we didn't know what was coming. You know, it happened to us once. It could happen mm. to us again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it the, also was the challenge of where do you start? Yeah. Um, you've got... To go 18 miles by one mile wide of total destruction yeah um so we yeah we're arguing about where to start and we saw an oklahoma city engine company go down western avenue and i said okay we'll follow him we'll just start wherever he starts sure and um pulled up in front of westmore high school and that's where we started sure and kept from there
0: yeah um that actually i guess in some way kind of uh, there's no good way to transition to the second half of the podcast so uh (laughs) what is the role of spirituality or religion in your life
1: uh it's important (laughs) um i'm not i mean i was cradle born a roman catholic raised Mm -hmm. roman catholic exceptionally comfortable in roman catholic churches Mm -hmm. uh in the roman catholic lifestyle um Got some disagreements, like most American Catholics have with the sure. World Catholic Church. Um, but that being said, I'm not a big fan of uh, organized uh, mm. religion per se. Um, in fact, I have a quote from Jethro Tull that uh, mm-hmm. that's up on my wall in of my office. <laughs> is uh, I asked this guy a question, and by way of firm reply, he said, "I'm not the kind that you have to wind up on Sunday." Mm. So. It's spirituality, religious relationship, sure. what have you, um, is a 24 7, 365. Sure. And it's not dictated by whether you attend Mass or not. Yeah. Um, don't particularly care for the people that go to Mass, act all devout, and then go live their life as whatever uh, else ugly people or what have you mm-hmm. during that period of time. Um, I'm interested in all faiths, all mm-hmm. religions. Um, I've actually studied them to a certain degree. Mm. Uh, every one of them has interesting aspects to it. Yeah. Um, I'm also what makes one religion right over the other religion mm. being right. Um, can, you know, 1.5 billion Chinese be totally wrong because they're not Christian. And, you know, what is it? 600 million Muslims or whatever it is mm. be wrong. So, uh, So I just kind of prefer just that there's um, some type of superior being, some type of uh, Mm. intellectually, a superior energy, superior being, being something beyond what our life is right now. Call it God, call it what have you. Mm. Now, emotionally and based upon my past, I'm still very much a Christian, Mm. love the tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, Even if you... Don't like Christianity. It's still a pretty nice rule, a set of rules for society to live by. Um, And I very, and if I get stressed or I get default, I default to Christianity Mm -hmm. and my Roman Catholic faith. So that. You know, you're existing intellectually on one level, sure, and then viscerally on another level. So, my visceral is Christianity and the Catholic Church. Intellectually, I'm open to anything, even that to the concept that it's just energy and you're transferring energy one place to the next, right. and things like that. Buddhism fascinates me,
2: yeah.
1: Um, the, the Taoism, um, I, I'm interested in all of that because. Uh, I don't discount them as being just absolutely wrong. Sure. Um, and faith is the belief in the absence of proof. Um, sure. So <laughs> you got to believe. Um, I understand why people be agnostic. Atheism seems to be a of religion of its own, mm. um, even though it's the absence or refusal of, of belief and stuff like mm. that. Um, and then I'm very much to each their own. Um, I do not like, um, a particular faith that means you're wrong. That just disgusts sure. me when that happens. Sure. Cause you don't know who's right or wrong. You'll yeah. find, you'll find out eventually.
2: <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so as an
0: extension of that, what is your definition of God?
1: Uh, superior being or, <laughs> uh, presence, um, or entity, um, and you can extrapolate it once again intellectually is anything from energy to a spiritual being mm-hmm. that controls things that we don't understand. Yeah. Um, what that entity is and what they're actually controlling. Um, could be anything from a scientific energy time Mm -hmm. type dimension to the typical um, spiritual being viscerally I still default to the spiritual being sure um, that there is something someone call it God Mm -hmm. um, that is greater than us that controls things that we don't understand yeah so it's kind of a Dichotomy, and right? Yeah, it's yeah. maybe a cop-out answer, but it's no. I, I do that a lot too. It's the... it's <laughs> yeah, but then it's a constant struggle, which it should be, and it yeah. should be a constant learning process too. Mm-hmm. I don't like blind faith. Um, I really admire people that have blind faith mm-hmm. um, because that makes life so much easy. <laughs> um, but it's an intellectual, a visceral uh, struggle, and I just. I love Christianity because of the tenets of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the tenets of Islam are incredible tenets as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's it's how you live. Spirituality is how you live your life every yeah. day and what actions you take. And are you doing things for selfish interest? Or are you doing things for the greater good? Yeah. Um, and if you're living yourself a life for the greater good... Non-selfish interest, uh, loving the people in the planet. Um, It doesn't make a difference if you're Islam or Christian or Jewish or what have you. Um, That may be the little pigeonhole box that you feel comfortable in. Mine's Christianity, but the next person's could be Islam. As long as you're living like that, then you're living a spiritual life.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: And the other extension of faith, I guess, is... uh, is free will an illusion? And how is it or is it not?
1: I, I No, I don't think free will. It all depends where you land on that continuum of control mm. uh, intellectually. And um, if you're a firm believer in predestination and that they're the entity or whatever it is, superior being, controls mm-hmm. all things, then you can make the argument that it is not. Uh, I would make the argument that because you have to make conscious choices to determine how you live Mm. and how you're gonna interact with other people and how you're gonna treat other people and integrity requires choice and it Mm. requires conscious action. I say that that free will has been left up to the individual Mm. to demonstrate um, or allow him or her to act in certain ways. Yeah. Um, so I think there is free will and I mm. think you have to, you know, because I can't imagine that a X amount of people are going to be jerks and X amount of people are going to be <laughs> wonderful people. Um, I think that the spirituality, uh, in a large extent in organized religion to a far lesser extent, but still to some degree mm. provides you the ground rules of engagement. Yeah. And then a free will decides how you as an individual, Act within those ground rules. Yeah. Um,
0: So I guess given the experiences that you've seen and lived through, and kind of the uh, chaos, uh, how does that kind of take part amongst uh, your spirituality?
1: Uh, Reinforces it to some degrees. It makes you if you. I think there, you know, there's a statement that there are no atheists in foxholes. Mm. Um, when you're in crisis, chaos, and when you're scared, mm. I could tell you that you switch, switch quickly, or at least I do. <laughs> I go very quickly from intellectual to visceral. Yeah. And then I'm I'm a Christian and I'm, you know, calling on God or Jesus Christ to mm. try to help make things uh, better happen. I don't really question why do bad things happen to people. Mm. Um they just do. Um, mm-hmm. I don't try to get into this because God wants you to do this or you're demonstrating the ability for people to be good by having bad things. I don't know why bad things happen, just like I don't know why good things happen. They just happen. And sure. trying to solve that riddle, I think, is kind of uh, <laughs> an exercise in frustration. Right. Um, but, for example, we took over a Catholic rectory during the bombing. Um And that was our operational center. It was right across the street from the Merrill building. Mm. And two people have been critically injured. Luckily, the priest that was there was away at the time. Um, But that house got treated with an incredible amount of respect. Sure. Um, And we uh, even spray-painted Pax Povibiscum on the the plywood, which is Latin for peace be with you, and... Mm. uh, the chaplains were important; mm. um, their work was important. So I think when you hit crisis and you see suffering, you yourself tend to become more spiritual, or at least more aware of your spirituality. Yeah. And you also realize that other people are become more aware of their spirituality. Mm. It tends to rise to a higher level in society than it does at a normal. Right. Um, and then as when you're in a command and control, you have to recognize that you not only have to look out for the physical well-being of people that are working the incident, but you also have to look out for spiritual well-being. Yeah. And if they want time off to go to church or something like that, yeah. that's just like going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to allow them that. Or if they want to go attend a religious service down at site, you, you allow them to do that, yeah. and things like that. So probably the short answer is <laughs> it brings spirituality, faith, religion to a higher level than it exists in normal society mm-hmm. for a multitude of reasons, personal yeah. needs, group needs, things like that. Yeah. Um,
0: and then what kind of seems to happen in uh, moments of disaster is that people tend to uh, come together a lot more often than they w- normally would, so I mean uh, a question that I 'd normally ask, but kind of with that perspective, uh how do we reduce the division that kind of pervades our culture kind of generally?
1: Oh, you want <laughs> me to solve a big problem um, um,
0: I think you just talk about it I think. <laughs>
1: Well, I think one thing is, is that I think spirituality, faith, religion can be a wonderful tool to do that Mm. if it's not hijacked. Yeah. Um, I think the most dangerous thing we can have is hijacked faith, Mm. Um, whatever it may be. There's just as much hijacked Christian faith as there are as Islam faiths and stuff. Islam is a wonderful, peaceful religion
2: Mm.
1: at the surface level. It's mm-hmm. just when it's hijacked and any faith can be hijacked and then mm-hmm. people get justification. So religion is a double-edged sword right. for doing that. Um, but it does provide some type of rules. Uh, I think uh, one way of doing it or, re, you know, is reducing the inequity gaps that occur. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a source of, uh, a lot of strife and strife, strife. Um, Boy, there's all sorts of things. Education Mm -hmm. um, is a a huge piece of it. Uh, And then I I think that it's just in some people's common nature to have problems being able to interact with others. Uh, Mental Mm -hmm. health is a big issue. I think we're just scratching the surface of what does it mean to be mentally well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's probably not just that you're not mentally ill. Mm -hmm. I think there's different, I think there's people that would be perfectly mentally well and pass whatever exam we have, and yet there's hidden or different or some aspect of their emotional and behavioral aspect that does not allow them to act in the way that's probably best for society. Mm -hmm. They're self-serving, what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the corporate structure, um, you need some type of incentive to move humanity forward. Yeah. Um, and greed has always been a good way of moving humanity forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see that kind of removed for scientific excitement, justification, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but we, we can't just sit around and just say, we all love each other. We still need to feed and, you know, and stuff like that. Right. Um, So I probably have gone all around the planet on that. But (laughs) I think we need to look at uh, education and then mental health development, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, not mind control necessarily, but making sure that things that negatively affect a child and then an adult's mental and behavioral makeup are identified and mitigated where they can be. And I think we just, do a really piss poor job of doing that. Um, the, the flip side of that though, is that you don't want to get into mind control where everybody's thinking the same. Um, it's just like anything else. If you take it to the extreme, Mm -hmm. faith being one of those, uh, take it to the extreme. It actually becomes such a negative that it kind of cancels any positive that you could have had out of it. Mental health assessment and treatment could be the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And then eventually we get to the point where it becomes a societal expectation. Mm. It's the societal expectation now is to succeed, Mm -hmm. um, which is led by greed, which is led by material goods. And as long as that's there and perpetuated and reinforced by media, social networking, Mm. what have you that we're not going to allow the breeding ground for the behavior that we want because we're telling people that in order for you to be valued as a human being, you have to get X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And so they go try to get X, Y, and Z. And in the process, (laughs) particularly if their mental makeup is not one that facilitates peace, love, and understanding type thing, then you've got real negative behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, what you replace that with um, is still very much sure. up in the air. But it, I think it's is, if we value people, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi at the same level that we we value Kim Kardashian, mm-hmm. <laughs> then we've gotten somewhere. But until that happens, um, we're going to keep perpetuating a stereotype that's going to perpetuate bad behavior towards each other. Sure. Um,
0: uh, as an extension of that train of thought that you're kind of following, do you believe that humans are evil by nature?
1: No. <laughs> I, well, let me back up on that. No, I don't think they're evil by nature because a child is not evil by nature.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And a child is the beginning stages of human. Now, can things happen to make them evil? Yes. Mm -hmm. But by nature, I don't think they are. I think some are probably born with some types of physiological issues Mm -hmm. or behavioral issues. The amygdala doesn't develop or what have you um, that can create behavior, but I don't know if it's evil. Um, but I think uh, I think human beings, like any animal, starts out not in an evil way. Mm-hmm. Um, evil is learned, or the consequence of trauma, or a me, or just a behavior pattern that develops because they're chasing that that golden material good. Yeah.
0: Um, and to kind of. Flip away from the negative. Um, What are you, and especially uh, given right now, what makes you optimistic about our
1: future? People. (laughs) I think the human condition is still there. Because in every, I've seen it in every disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, The Oklahoma City bombing was a pure act of whatever you want to call it, evil Mm -hmm. to retribution, what have you, but it was a negative act. Sure. A huge negative act Mm. uh, that had horrible consequences, but that was trumped by the Oklahoma standard. Mm. Uh, Katrina, horrible problems occurred uh, due to ineffective city management, racism, Mm. inequities, income inequities, whatever reason Mm. you want to put in there. Yeah. Bad things happen, but I saw some incredible things happen with humanity. I saw one, a couple that has, saw a lady sitting on her porch in a wheelchair, blind. Mm. They did not know this lady from Adam, Mm. but they knew that she sat there, she would drown. Yeah. So they found a baby pool. They put her in the baby pool and they waited around with her for a day and a half in a baby pool. They floated her and carried her around. Hmm. And then when she came to us, they were still with her because they had taken emotional ownership of her well-being. Yeah. And I saw that happen all over. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't make the news. So what makes me optimistic is I think that as a human race, we can be there. We can get there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's some huge roadblocks. Sure. Sure that may stop us from ever reaching it. We may kill ourselves off before we get there, mm-hmm. but I think we're capable of getting there.
0: Yeah. Um, then what makes you
1: content? Uh, <laughs> what makes me content?
0: Yeah, or happy, however you want to interpret my wife, that. My wife,
1: my dogs, <laughs> my family. Um, that's pretty much contentment now. <laughs> is i'm very happy not doing a whole lot i've done enough uh, it's uh but my my family has always been hmm. the the anchor the uh, i'm very very fortunate that i've got a wonderful wife and and family and that makes all the difference in the world if you have that anchor You can deal with a whole lot of stuff, but if you lose that anchor, then you tend to go adrift very quickly dealing with all the stuff that we have to deal with. Um, and now that everything's gone away and everything's, everything's temporary, the only thing that you want to be permanent is your relationships and your family.
0: Yeah.
1: So that makes me content reading, Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the usual things that, that make me content. I love nature. I love traveling. Um, Mm I tend to like the non-touristy places. I like to go experience other people's cultures, lives. Yeah. Um, I love to go to Ireland. I'm very comfortable (laughs) there. Um, But what makes me content is uh, the the family, being safe, secure, um, and then available. Yeah. And that's all you really need.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, two more questions for you Uh, so what advice do you have for people in general don't forget the golden well two pieces of advice public health practices matter (laughs) and they can make a difference yeah so it may seem kind of silly right now because you've heard it all over the place but for human decency and the good of the health and well-being of society uh just good public health practice yeah um you know the old wash your hands sneezing that type of stuff if yeah. you're sick whatever stay home um easier said than done sometimes i realize sure. uh and the other is take a good look at yourself and are you acting the way that some of your more admirable historical figures would act you know, your Gandhi's, Mandela's, Buddha's, Jesus Christ, mm. um, or are you chasing that material good and following the Kim Kardashian? And I just <laughs> I have nothing against Kim Kardashian, just that the amount of it's attention. The example, you, yeah, <laughs> as an example. Or are you? Are you? chasing the kardashians
2: because
1: mm-hmm. uh, i really think if you chase the kardashians you may be financially well off but you won't be happy sure um and you won't have done anything to really perpetuate yourself or your family or your fellow man yeah um i think that's probably the best thing is just stop and just decide how am i reacting and then why am i reacting that way sure and if the answer is i'm doing it. Because of x, y, and z, then you may accept that. it may be great, <laughs> but sure. probably just assess yourself as you know cut through the b s and all the uh what's the term I'm looking for rationalization there's sure. a huge amount of rationalization goes on. I have to act this way because of this, or mm-hmm. you know, and just really challenge every bit of rationalization, and get down to the to the nitty gritty and just why am I acting this way yeah. and can I act any different
2: mm mm-hmm.
1: Because until you do that You're not going to get to that point Where we're as a society Acting the way we should Versus the way that we do
0: Yeah (laughs) And then last one
1: Cake or pie? Pie definitely Oh boy (laughs) I love baked goods all the way around But uh, definitely pie (laughs) Apple, blueberry, rhubarb, pumpkin I've been a pie fanatic (laughs) since I was Two years old I think uh, you ask that question to anybody that knows me, and they'll tell you oh, yeah. real easy.
0: <laughs> um, Michael, thank you for doing this with me. My pleasure. Uh, normally, people kind of plug what they've got going on, but you're not really a, a public individual. So instead, you know, something you want to I'm going to plug the in.
1: reassessment of yourself <laughs> and cut through the rationalization and yeah. just do a reassessment. Sweet. Because that'll be better. That'll benefit me more than anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you. Uh,
0: I'm Santiago Ramones. I'm Michael Murphy. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. You can find my composery stuff through my SoundCloud or my Master recital, which uh, is all on YouTube or on my website. And you can find all the stuff that i do with power cycle which is a electronic experimental composer trio we have an album that's streaming everywhere called too many damn cables and i always end my podcast with my three things they shape my life philosophy those three things are love never fails
2: it's going to be okay i might be wrong